0: Welcome to the Felon File Podcast, a review of historical true crime in the Appalachian Mountains and elsewhere. Hosted by Scott Lunsford, retired police detective, author, and researcher. Welcome back to another episode of the Felon File and as Victoria said, thank you Victoria for opening up the show today. I am your host Scott Lunsford, retired police sergeant detective with the Asheville, North Carolina Police Department, writer, researcher, and wearer of many hats. And today we're coming to you from the hills in Madison County up on top of one of the mountains in the Laurel section. We hope that the sound is good for you guys and that you have an interesting story for you today. Our Shade of Blue story today goes back to the year of 1894. It takes place a little southeast of where we are now and but it's still in the hills and mountains of western North Carolina. A very good area to hide if you so desire which we'll talk about some more in a minute now the bank runs of 1893 led to what was to become known as the uh, the panic not too different than what goes on in modern times it was also known as the war of wealth it led to a very significant economic depression in 1894 and lasted for several years This panic was one of the most severe financial crises in the history of the United States up until that time. Instability arose for several reasons. One of the reasons was gold reserves maintained by the United States fell to about 100 million from 190 million where they had been in 1890, just three years before. The economic depression was documented as ending about 1897 after hitting every sector of the economy and producing some real political issues that brought about the election of President William McKinley. Economy issues and protests are nothing new. In 1894, there was also the same going on. A lot of people aren't aware of this but there was a protest and a march on the United States Capitol by a group called Coxie's Army an Ohio businessman by the name of Jacob Coxie marched on Washington DC in 1894 the official name of the group was the Army of the Commonwealth in Christ its nickname Coxie's Army actually came from its leader And that name actually endured quite a bit more. A group of about four, five hundred individuals from various parts of the United States marched on the federal capitol building to demand the government do something about the recession or the financial situation and financial crisis that was going on at that time. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? In April 29, like we said, the 500 strong Commonwealth of Christ, or Coxey's army, arrived in Washington, D.C. Their protest was against unemployment, and Coxey and a lot of his followers were arrested for trespassing at the Capitol. 1894 was also the year that the North Carolina General Assembly approved the state motto, Ease Quam Verde, to be rather than to seem. In 1894, comparing that to modern times, the first college basketball game was played. University of Chicago beat Chicago YMCA 19 to 11. Also, another very impactive incident that occurred. March 12th of that year, Coca-Cola began selling bottles of Coke in Vicksburg, Mississippi for the first time. With all the everyday new things happening in the world and in the Appalachian Mountains, there was a young girl growing up in a mountain home in Henderson County, where one of the state newspapers later put it, quote, she listened to the whispering of the free invigorating breezes. Now, back then, newspaper writing was an art and almost a pleasure to read sometimes. The town of Tryon polk county is named for lord tryon who camped for some time there with his army during the revolutionary war on the side of the town there lived a family in 1894 by the name of paris about four miles from tryon city was the paris farm here louise or lou as she was called was raised until she was about 15 16 years old now next to the paris farm was the farm of a family named Redmond. Relatives of the infamous outlaw and moonshiner of South Carolina, Major Lewis Redmond, who is noted in many periodicals of the day and a lot of textbooks today on history, as King of the Moonshiners. On March 1st, 1876, Moonshiner Lewis Redmond had murdered a U.S. Deputy Marshal alfred duckworth near uh, east fork in transylvania county but that's another shade of blue story that we're going to get into a little bit later needless say the redmond family was pretty well known in the area and also known for their moonshining business now on this redmond farm was a young man the owner's son a ralph redmond who was a few years older than Louise Paris. They grew up together. Both of them had very little formal education. They received some while together in a log-built schoolhouse and not too far away from where their homes were. They grew up together and, of course, their intimacy and their friendship grew as well. Now, when Lou was about 15 or 16, Years old, the Paris family moved to Tryon City to run a private boarding house for summer visitors. The 1894 answer to today's B&Bs, I guess, is something the small mountain town is still noted for. Now living in town, the young lady, being a very beautiful and possibly a little naive, attracted the attention of a lot of the young men of the community so naturally the new belle of the town enjoyed this newfound attention and this long line of suitors. There was one man in particular, a young man by the name of William Johnston, who became desperately smitten with Lou. William was a young man about town and usually had his pick of the local young ladies. He focused his attention though on Lou, thinking she was just another typical girl like he was used to swing and swaying with his good looks money and charm. Now Lou led the city boys on a merry dance for a few months but but she did remain true to her boyfriend back home Ralph Redman. Now considering the time location and his relatives and their activities Ralph was himself a moonshiner, or commonly referred to as a blockader this simple fact he had religiously kept from his sweetheart Lou. The other young men in town knew that Lou had been singled out by William Johnson to pursue and the other young men kind of stood clear And after a while let William concentrate on his escapades and trying to ensnare Lou in his wily ways. So they did in fact give way and let Johnson who pushed his pursuit of the pretty young lady as far as he could, but unfortunately, even with his charm and good looks, it was no match for the memory of the young man, Mr. Redmond, back home. So Lou quietly but very firmly rejected the young man about town. Now this, of course, was unbelievable to Mr. William Johnston, and he dealt a powerful blow to him and his reputation as a ladies' man, not to mention his pride and ego. He became fearfully jealous of any young man who Louise permitted to pay attention to. It took a little investigation on the nosing around on the part of Johnston to determine that his competition for Lou's attention was one Mr. Ralph Redmond, who would occasionally come down off the mountain and come and visit his lady in town. Johnston discovered in his prowling around that it was reported that Redmond was a moonshiner. Johnston having contacts that law enforcement at that time didn't have was able with a little effort to locate positive evidence that Ralph had been running a moonshine distillery for several years up on one of the mountains in Triumph. Revenueers had so far not been able to locate the still facility but it was very well hidden up in the mountains. Now as a result and as a result Revenue officers had never been able to find it and arrest Redmond with the evidence they needed. Johnston though was able to dig a little deeper and more people were willing to talk to him and he was able to furnish a federal agent by the name of Vanderford with where the still was located, how to find it, and just exactly what was going on up there. Now Vanderford and a group of men caught, caught Redmond and several of his associates, red-handed, so to speak, with a still running at full blast up in the high mountains of Henderson County. All this done with the information from Johnston. All were arrested and put in the Columbus jail. Still, with assistance from friends on the outside, they were able to escape and took to the mountains. Now this wasn't the only escape that Mr. Redmond was alleged to have been involved with. Some media documentation states that Ralph Redmond had been involved in the infamous Bastille breakout and escape from the Buncombe County Jail of the Anderson brothers. I documented the Shade of Blue story in episode nine seven of the Felon Files and that's still posted and available on Spotify if you want to listen to it. Pretty interesting story. And it's also available on other podcast platforms, if you like. Now, Redmond's enforced absence gave Johnston what he thought was a clear field. And he renewed and amplified his pursuit of Miss Lou Paris. Now, friends of Redmond hadn't been idle. And it didn't take them too long to figure out and satisfy themselves that Johnston was the one who had furnished the information to vanderfort On which Redmond and his friends had been arrested and the distillery seized and destroyed. Now this word was forwarded down to Miss Paris who was informed of this fact and this of course didn't sit very well with her. And when Johnston made his next courting visit he was confronted with the treachery that had been done to her boyfriend and unable to make a case for his innocence he was shown the door and advised to return only if he was sent for kind of you know don't call us we'll call you johnston became furious he decided he would destroy the character of miss paris by slandering her to the other young men in the town and whoever else would listen the spoiled little boy concept if i can't have her no one can this took a little bit of time to get back to the Paris family, but it did. Johnston was telling anyone who would listen to him that Lou had relationships with everyone she could find, but since the family was operating a boarding house, the story soon became that Lou was part of a one-woman brothel there at the boarding house. His slander and lies soon became known to Miss Paris, to Lou and her mother, Martha Paris. The two went out to seek some sort of legal redress against Johnston, but because of Johnston's family and their pull in the town, they were unable to do so. Well, unable to go this route, the mother sent Johnston a note asking that he call on the family. Now thinking that perhaps this was his lucky day, at a meeting face-to-face on the front porch of the boarding house, the mother confronted Johnston. Tell me, she demanded. When Johnson came, is it true? Well, the young man just nodded his head and said, yes, it's true. Lou Paris stood there and listened. She heard the cruel story being repeated in detail to her mother. Why, she said, facing her accuser on the front porch in the waning light of sundown. Why do you stand and tell my mother that cruel lie? It's not a lie, said Johnson. Tis true the young man smugly insisted. Well, in a moment, the color faded from the girl's cheeks, and her blue eyes flashed with a fire of uncontrollable anger, and her body shook with rage. Grabbing a knife that had been used for some sort of food preparation work on the front porch, the angry teenager thrust the blade into the center of the chest of her detractor and slanderer. The attack happened very quickly and was over too fast for Johnston to defend himself. The slim blade making contact with the would-be suitor's heart causing internal bleeding and according to court records he was dead in less than 30 minutes. Well you just can't go off and stab somebody in the chest on your front porch. Well it ended up the young girl and her mother Miss Martha Paris were arrested mother was charged as an accomplice to murder on that Thursday evening both were brought to the local jail where they occupied the same cell an inquest was held the next day and they were both brought into Justice Jordan's court for a preliminary hearing local attorneys had been located a group by the name of South and Pless and another by the name of Blythe and Anderson appeared for the defense and a Mr. H. Ewart for the prosecution or for the state. After hearing the evidence, the mother was released, but Lou was bound over to the following term of court. She was committed to jail without bail and was sent to Hendersonville for safekeeping. Now the sheriff did this knowing of her association with Redmond and his family and that relatively recently, his personal ability to walk out of jail whenever he had been arrested kind of like the song says a little help from my friends she had to be moved to a more secure jail facility to prevent her rescue by ralph Redman and his friends so that was what happened local papers had published the story of the alleged femme fatale activities of lou paris and some individuals had even testified in the court hearing to knowing of her actions and her reputations. Moore claimed to know this is a fact, and they repeated it in the next court hearing as well. Now, as far as the media was concerned, the evidence at the preliminary trial established the personal allegations as fact. Lou Paris did not regret her actions and was willing to tell a judging jury the reason for her sudden and fatal act. At the next term in Superior Court, a, a Judge Boykin was presiding, and Miss Harris was indicted for the murder. She was represented by some of the best lawyers in the western part of the state of North Carolina. Not being able to achieve a change of venue for what might be a less prejudged guilty-seeking jury, the attorneys advised her to plead guilty to second-degree murder or manslaughter. The court in the end agreed and sentenced a 16-year-old girl to prison for 15 years. Many people, including a lot of the media writers, felt that the acceptance of this plea was an act of mercy on the part of the prosecuting attorney because the state would have proved premeditation and a predisposition to commit murder. If she had gone to trial, the likelihood was she would have been convicted of murder in the first degree, and a pardon by the governor would have only been the thing that saved her from death by the hangman. Now in the higher court, Paris's admission to a verdict of manslaughter to the press and a lot of the local community was virtually admitting that her allegations against her reputation were valid. Convicted and sentenced, Lou was taken to the women's prison in Raleigh, at the North Carolina State Capitol. She was given a prison uniform. Her beautiful, lengthy hair was cut short, as was the fashion to reduce the impact of lice and other common prison parasites. Like her fellow inmates, she was given assigned work. She assisted in washing and bending and making garments for her fellow prisoners there at the women's prison and in the prisons throughout the state. In the meantime, her boyfriend, Mr. Redmond, a prison escapee himself, who was still hiding up in the old Tyron, Henderson County, craggy cliffs and mountains, ended up receiving news of the situation of his sweetheart and trickled into his camp by his relatives and his friends. They brought him the word of the murder of Johnston and of Lou's conviction and imprisonment. Now, there's no doubt, had Lou been confined in the jail in Henderson County or Polk County uh, or someplace close by, Redmond and a bunch of his friends would have destroyed the jailhouse from what the newspaper recorded as turret to foundation stone in their effort to have liberated Miss Lou. But since the trial had occurred before he was given this information, she was safely in the women's prison in Raleigh before he was made aware. So Redmond left the mountains and came to Raleigh. He had never been in the capital city before, therefore was entirely unknown. However, he did have some associates there that he was aware of, probably customers of his uh, moonshining business. Using these contacts, he he was able to find work there and through a friend with some connections he was able to get information to Lou there in the women's prison that he was in town and with the assistance of his friend he was able to visit with Miss Lou a few times without the prison authorities figuring out or knowing that he was a moonshiner or a fugitive from justice and not to mention the prisoners boyfriend The press of the state at the time had covered the story of the 16-year-old murderess who claimed to have killed to keep her reputation secure. But after arriving at the women's prisons, Lou Paris came to the attention of a religious organization called the Rescue Circle of the King's Daughters of Raleigh. The head of the local organization, a Mrs. Hayes, took great interest in the female convict. The organization visited her in prison did all it could to alleviate her condition as a prisoner. The group's impression of Lou's being young and unsophisticated without education and training, and appearing to have the making in her of a good and faithful woman, and of course their desire to surround her with better environments, the king's daughter set to work to procure a, a conditional pardon for Miss Paris. Now, not everyone agreed with the king's daughters, though. The Asheville Citizen newspaper reprinted an article from the Henderson County newspaper the Henderson County Telegram that quote stated public sentiment here meaning the state capital is very much in favor of the pardon for Miss Lou Paris the 17 year old girl from Henderson County now serving a 15-year sentence for stabbing the man who accused her of inconstance," which means basically another way of saying a loose lady. Governor Carr has made the matter under consideration. The article went on to decry, Raleigh sentimentalists would do well to remember they have nothing to do with this case. A Henderson County jury decided the woman should be in prison for her crime. It is no more suitable for Wake County to put in a word for the prisoner Then for Henderson County, were the situation reversed? That came from a a June 27, 1894, Asheville Citizen Times newspaper. After working with the King's daughter, Miss Lou was induced to sign an agreement with them. She would voluntarily surrender herself as soon as released, if she was, to the King's daughters and go with Miss Hayes to the House of the Good Shepherd in Maryland. A halfway house for wayward women. There once she once there she would remain until she had been thoroughly reformed and trained to go out into the world and make an honest living. Now the pardon was ended up being granted by North Carolina Governor Carr, and again it was a conditional uh, release and was given primarily because of the earnest solicitation of the rescue circle of the King's Daughters of Raleigh, whose appeal was also endorsed by the State Board of Charities. Local Raleigh publicity, with the influence of the charities and several local churches and local citizens, touted the incident as a miscarriage of justice, the exact opposite of what had been run previously in state media. A home in the Good Shepherd's Reformatory in Bootmore, Maryland, and the conditions of the pardon that she be kept in this home as long as the authorities deemed it best for her whookfare, or until she had thoroughly reformed. Now one newspaper article of the day wrote it, It was granted with the hope that being removed from the penitentiary and with the association of hardened criminals, her character may be purified. Don't you like their writing? and her future life may be spent in usefulness and in atonement for a crime committed in a moment of frenzy. The young girl owes her liberty to the good women of the king's daughters who through the committee of the rescue circle composed of Miss Hayes, Miss McPeters, and Miss Dr. Carter never tried, never tired, or grew weary until our charitable humane governor granted the pardon. Well, that's interesting. So she did go. Documents indicate that she was released from the Raleigh Prison for Women, and she was taken to the reformatory or the halfway house, if you want to call it such, in Baltimore, Maryland. And what about Mr. Redmond? Friends, families, and attorneys were actually successful in having the indictments against him in federal court dropped mainly because one of the witnesses to the evidence, well, he got stabbed in the heart. And without the federal indictments, the state charges of escape were also dismissed. Now free of criminal charges, that at least the ones he'd been caught for, he followed his lady to Maryland. Once in Baltimore, Redmond found employment as a conductor on one of the electric trolley rail systems in the city. He was even able to occasionally visit with Miss Lou, and here he waited. In the Watauga Democrat newspaper december seventeenth of eighteen ninety six, there is a very short article that states quote, Lou Paris, the girl who killed Will Johnson in Polk County two years ago, is back at her old home. The girl was sentenced to 15 years in the penitentiary and subsequently sent to a reform school in Baltimore. A report says the reform school gave up on her in despair, and this is likely true. A good deal of sentimental sympathies were wasted on the girl. Still, those who have had experience with her say she is a holy terror. Makes you wonder, what is the truth in this story? Well, the last chapter I found on Lou Paris and Ralph Redmond comes from a Spartanburg, South Carolina newspaper, July 19th, 1902. The following news item was given out. Uh, married in the city today, Miss Mr. Ralph Redmond and Mr. Lou Paris. The happy couple left immediately for Baltimore, where the groom is employed as a responsible and trusted conductor with the electric car company there and where he and his bride will make their home. Now, did they live happily ever after? Did this possibly notorious couple live happily ever after? Were they notorious? Unfortunately, I haven't been able to determine. The couple seems to have disappeared from history that I can find. This could indicate there wasn't any more involvement in the legal system. But unfortunately, I've yet to find any footprints to show whether they did or did not. We can only really hope or at least imagine that they did live happily ever after. And that's our Shade of Blue story for this Saturday evening. And I hope you'll come back for our next episode here on Fallon File. Remember, but again, come back in. And I promise to try to have another really good Shade of Blue story for you. Now in the coming weeks, remember, if you have the opportunity, do something nice for somebody. It's really the right thing to do and what we really should be doing all along. It would probably make the world a better place. Remember, be safe and be secure. And we'll talk to you guys later. Be sure to check out our website felonfile.com and Scott Author.com where you can find links to my books and the podcast there on Spotify. Where you can also buy some t-shirts or coffee mugs with, with the File logo on it where you can let people know where you get your shade of blue stories. We'll talk to you guys later. Bye, y'all. This has been The Felon File, a discussion on law enforcement, history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and other parts of the world. For more information, you can go to felonfile.com or scottlunsfordauthor.com. Here you can find links to Scott and Num books and other information. You can also email us at felonfile at gmail.com. There are also t-shirts and mugs available. You can also buy us a cup of coffee, or help purchase some of the research material and expenses it takes to do felon file. Click on the coffee image on the web page to do so. This is Victoria your producer thank you for listening. Have a good one.